Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 is where I'd like to start off today. It starts out pretty, pretty directly, doesn't it? Acts 3, verse 19, I'll be reading from the New King James Version for the most part and mentioning some other translations as we go, but Acts chapters 3, verse 19, repent therefore and turn to God. How many agree that's a, quite a starting point right there, repent and turn to God? Repent, therefore, and turn to God, that your sins may be blotted out or erased, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Messiah Yeshua, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began." This passage, Acts chapter 3, contextually, if you look at the Acts chapter 3, it's right after the miracle, the healing of the lame man at the gate beautiful, as it's called in English. And if you remember, he's healed, and he, does, he doesn't sit there quietly with his hands folded. The Lord touches him, heals him, and what does he do? He gets up, he's walking and leaping and praising God, as the text says in Acts chapter 3. He's actually excited about what God is doing or has done for him. He receives a, a miracle intervention from the Lord. His, his life looked quite hopeless. He was relegated to sitting at the, on the sidelines and being totally dependent upon other people. And I'm sure when I say that, that none of us here would like to be in that type of a situation. And as Kepha Peter, whom the Lord used mightily in that circumstance, as he begins to share with those who are around, those who had experienced and witnessed this, he begins to share with them what we just read from Acts chapter 3, verse 19, is a small segment of a larger, what we might call drash, a larger segment of his speaking, of, of Kepha's speaking to those who were there. And... I want to mention to you, as we look at verses 19 through 21, that it is direct, as I mentioned. It says repent, and, and repentance is an important thing. It's not a, 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 a matter that's often talked about nowadays, but it's critical for us. If we're not walking the way we should, we must come to a place of repentance, of turning, getting back with the Lord. It says, repent, therefore, and turn to God. But it, and it says your sins may be blotted out, erased. But what I want to focus on are the next statements. It says, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How many of you like times of refreshing? We need those. It's important for us. And then it says in verse 20, and that he may send Messiah Yeshua. This is a reference to Messiah returning. As we are here on Shabbat mornings, and our, our person that's leading the chazan, the person that's leading our liturgy, usually has his face towards the east and mentions something about Yeshua returning to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem. And today, if you were here during the liturgy, as Eric mentioned about the Mount of Olives splitting, referencing a passage in the book of Zechariah, what a day that's going to be. And yet here, Kepha, that he may send Messiah Yeshua, who was preached to you before in verse 20 of Acts chapter 3. And then it gives us a bit of a timeline here. Whom heaven must receive until. Heaven must receive until 
the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So it mentions the times of restoration of all things, and it also mentions, again, and I'm repeating this on purpose, it mentions that God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets these things previously. Now, it's true that this passage from Acts chapter 3, when we couple that with several other passages from the Scripture, and maybe you have some passages in mind, if you're familiar with the Word of God, that, that you would connect with this passage. But I want to share several with you that I connect with Acts chapter 3. When it talks about heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, I think of this passage. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 6. im keves, and the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Venamerim gedi, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The egel uchfir, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Venarkaton no hegbam, and a little child shall lead them. Ufara vadov. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, what a passage that is. I think there would be unanimous consent here today that this is not where we're at right now in our world. I mean, just the idea, of course, it's a translation here that I'm using where it says the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. I just say, oi, when I think of that. Those of you who are moms and dads and you think about it, those of you who have a love for children or have watched children and realize you wouldn't want that to happen right now. Would you want the nursing child to play by the cobra's hole? No. Would you want the weaned child to put his hand into the viper's den? No. That's not where this world is at right now. Just the beginning, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And it doesn't say, and have the lamb for dinner that day. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and not prepare a barbecue using that young goat. The eagle, fear, the calf, and the young lion and a fowling together. Just think, that's not what the world's like right now. And I know here there are many nature lovers. How many of you like animals and stuff like that? I'm one of those. <laughs> there are many nature lovers. By that I mean the birds, the bird watchers, and uh, YouTubers that have all kinds of pictures of their cats and their dogs and their parrots and their mice and their rats and the blah, 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 blah. Everything you can think of. I would not want to be there watching right now if a nursing child was playing by the cobra's hole. And I would not want to be there if the weaned child shall put his hand in the vipers. And I know I would probably want to intervene, and so would you. But if you remember Acts chapter 3, that we read, verse 19, 20 through 21. Heaven must receive Yeshua until the times of restorations of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his prophets. The Chazal or the Hebrew sages over the centuries, in thinking about passages like this, and particularly this passage from Yeshayahu, Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 6, they noticed something about this particular passage, the sages, the Hebrew sages. They noticed that this passage is between two other passages. We know it as Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, where it begins, you probably recognize this statement, there shall come forth a rod out of Jesse. A clear messianic prophecy 
Messiah coming forth from the, 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 the root of Jesse. In fact, in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 11, right after the passage we just read, it says this, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. And the Chazal, the, the sages of old, recognize that, yeah, there's this passage in Isaiah that, that's just out there. We're not there now. And it's sandwiched between two prophecies about the Messiah, two messianic passages. And the conclusion, and I would agree with the sages on this, the conclusion that they came up with, they concluded that this restoration that Isaiah 11 talks about with the lamb and the lion and all, all the things that it mentions, the different animals, that this restoration and the true change that needs to come to the earth is connected to Messiah Yeshua. They didn't say Yeshua, they just said Messiah, but we'll identify him here this morning. The Messiah is Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. This is exactly what the new covenant teaches. Just think about it. Those of us who have received the Lord as our Lord and Savior and recognize Him as the Messiah, we realize just how powerful He is, just how much He has changed us. He's changed us. He's redeemed us. He's intervened in our lives. And how many of you can say here this morning, that's true for you. He has intervened in your life. He has changed you. He is at work in your life because He's powerful. And in fact... The scripture tells us that if anyone is in Messiah Yeshua in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, that person is an absolutely spanking new creation. It says all the former things have passed away. So that speaks of a spiritual restoration in our hearts. Many of us do have what is commonly called a BC period before the Messiah. And then we have the AC period after the Messiah gets a hold of our life. And we can see the big difference there in our lives. That's the testimony of many of us because the power of the Messiah is not limited. He can change us deeply inside. In fact, he does change us deeply inside. There are many ways to describe that. Is that restoration? Is that renewal? It certainly is new life. It was in my life, and I pray it is in yours that new life has come because of the Messiah. All the former things are passing away, and new things are coming. They're from his hand, blessed be his name. Yet, as obvious and true as this may seem to us as believers, those of us who are believers here today, there are some people that hold the view that God is not involved with this world so much. He's not closely involved. They hold the view or they contend that yes, perhaps, perhaps God created the world and all that the world contains. I mean, there has to be some kind of a starting point for where we're at. Perhaps God did that, they say. And then they adopt a view that yes, God perhaps created the world and all contains but then he just turned it loose. He turned it loose like a child with a wind-up toy. And God created, did the creation, and he, he wound up the creation, and he turned it loose like a child with a wind-up toy. And how many of you have seen what happens with a wind-up toy? After a while, it just fizzles out. If it's a little animal that's walking and going, the next thing you know, the animal's like this. And that's how they view creation. Perhaps God did it. And if, if God did it, well, it's like a wind-up toy. He, he just shot it out there and he sits back. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, and he lets go. There is a term for that, theological term for that type of belief. It's called deism. Deism. And there are many forms of deism. And in fact, some of the founding fathers of this nation were what we might call deists. And rather than use the name Yeshua or Jesus in their writings, they put providence or they put sovereign or something like that, the sovereign. 
There's nothing wrong with either of those words. Two of my favorite words, theological words, providence and sovereignty. Yet for them, they believe that God had basically created everything, then stood back, and, and now it's up to us. By the way, do you feel like you have the power in yourself to restore all things? I don't. Not in myself. The only one who has that power is God Almighty, is the Lord. And there are many forms of deism, many different strands of it. People see it in different ways, different ideas connected to deism. But to those who think like that, have a deistic view of the creation that God wound it all up, set it out there, and then he stands back. Which the question I always had when I considered this philosophy is, well, what is he doing now then? But the greatest effort then to those who have that view is the human effort. Those who hold a deistic view, they think the greatest effort is a human effort. What can we do? It's us. And humankind, mankind must do it all. Mankind can repair the world. Mankind can transform the world. Mankind can do it. It's very common in our Jewish community, tikkun olam, the reparation, the repairing of the world. And bring the world to a better place. But can our human efforts bring us to absolute restoration? Like we read about in Isaiah chapter 11 with the wolf and the lamb together? I don't think so. So if this view that mankind's effort is the greatest effort, if this is the view that's held... This view contends that mankind is the activated force of existence. And God is sidelined to his own choice and his own inaction. To me, that's a very bleak view. I certainly believe the scripture teaches about an all-powerful God who truly loves us, who can intervene in our lives whom we can cry out to and say, Lord, please help me, whom we can lift our hands in praise to and say, Lord, thank you, that he does care. And I think that biblical faith differs greatly from the idea that God is distant from his creation. That viewpoint differs. It's, it's a, a, quite a difference between that and biblical faith. faith. And here are a number of areas that I think crucially there's a difference because true faith, true faith recognizes that the Bible is God's word. And we should take seriously God's word and that we should do all we can to walk according to God's word. And true faith also recognizes God is involved in our lives. God is involved in our lives now and he longs to be involved even more in the days ahead as we will let him. And as he sovereignly intervenes, true faith recognized that God revealed himself. In Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, he revealed himself to us. And Yeshua is the express image of eternal deity. True faith recognizes God is work, at work within us. He's working within us, conforming us to the image of his holy son, Yeshua. And we know that when this is said and done, we're going to be like him. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's going to be glorious. True faith also recognizes, and this is a key point, where a deistic view doesn't. True faith recognizes that there are ultimate destinations for mankind. You know, one of these destinations is not commonly spoken about. The idea of heaven, pretty receptive to that, aren't we? But the idea of hell and the opposite of heaven, separation from God is not highly looked upon in our society. It has left many pulpits. It's not spoken about. But God is the judge. 
And if we believe what the Word of God says, there are ultimate destinies, there are ultimate locations that we go to. There is a heaven and there is a hell. God is the good judge. He's a just judge of all people, but the fate will be different for the just and the unjust, for the righteous and the unrighteous, for the repentant versus the unrepentant. And I hope everyone here hearing these words is in the repentant group that you've turned to, towards the Lord and receive redemption from your sins through the blood of Yeshua, the Messiah. Because our faith in Yeshua is an active faith. And true faith recognizes that prayer is powerful. Do you know we can make our request known to him? We try to do that here often. And that he does respond, he hears our cries, and he acts according to his will. The deistic view says, hey, you're on your own, boys. I created you, here you go. Do what you're going to do. True faith says God hears our cries and he'll help us and he intervenes for us when we call out to him. And we are by his grace, we are recipients of power from his Holy Spirit that we could not have even imagined as unbelievers. All the believers that I've talked to over the years, all of them have told me that they were surprised what God did with their lives. They had one plan for their life and they ended up going another way and it was much better than their plan. And if you're like me, some of us have made some mistakes along the way and now we want to make sure we go all the more in the way of the Lord in our life because the way of the Lord is good. It's right. It's perfect for us. It's the blameless way. And we should be thankful what Psalm 46 verse 1 says, that he is our refuge and our strength, and he is a very present help in trouble. We should be thankful for that. Or, if you prefer, he is Emmanuel. With us is God. He's the God who's with his people rather than the God who's not with us and doesn't care about us. And the Scripture teaches he's the God who's with us, and he cares. He cares about you today. He cares about the circumstances in your life. He cares about what you're facing. He wants you to walk with a future and a hope that he has prepared for you, that he desires for you to walk in. That's what he's trying to do. And I think the Messianic Jewish movement, I believe it is a revival movement. Or you could even say part of his restoration. And I'm going to conclude with some thoughts about the Messianic Jewish movement here. Many of the old-time Messianic Jewish believers <laughs> refer to the Messianic Jewish movement as the Messianic Jewish revival. I hear it all the time, the Messianic Jewish revival. And, of course, the word revival implies new life, also has the connotation of, of restoration and renewal, uh, very terms we've been talking about here this morning. And if you listen to how Rav Shaul Paul the Apostle said in the book of Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 11, he stated this, I say then, have they, the they here refers to the Jewish people, have they, have the Jewish people stumbled that they should fall, that they should completely be fallen away? He raises that question so he can answer it, and he answers it emphatically. How does he answer it? Say it with me. It's just two words. Certainly not. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world... And their failure riches for the Gentiles. Say the next five words with me, please. How much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Verse 15 of Romans 11 for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? But are we seeing life from the dead as the apostle 
intimates here. It says, if their being cast away is reconciled in the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Are we seeing that? Are we seeing that which seemed gone, that which seemed totally out now coming back? Have we seen that which was in the background now coming to the forefront? The answer is a definitive yes. Yes. In fact, I'm going to present to you today some ideas where I believe the Messianic Jewish revival, or however you want to call it, the movement, the restoration, and some of the very things that we take for granted in Messianic synagogues like this, in Messianic communities similar to ours, they are major components or major pointers to what could be called life from the dead. God is bringing about some things and we're seeing some things that speak of resurrection, life from the dead, that which was before hidden and not seen coming to the forefront, that which, which was no longer considered now coming back to consideration. And I want to conclude by offering you 10 restoration trends occurring now, which may be part of what we read about in passages like Acts chapter 3, verse 21, where Kepha, Peter says, the times of restoration, King James says, restitution of all things. Here are some of the things that are coming back to life. Number one, and these are in no specific order as if the first one is the greatest or the last one is the least important, but just 10 thoughts for you to consider. Things that have come back to life. Number one, I love this one, recognition of Shabbat in its Yeshua-centric context, the Sabbath. Now, there are a lot of strange stuff out there about Shabbat, and there are different ways to approach the idea of a Sabbath. But there clearly is a fourth commandment. And the Sabbath, the Shabbat of the fourth commandment, predates the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Shabbat goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, the creation. And there's been a recognition, increasing recognition about the Shabbat that has come. It's found in virtually all Messianic Jewish synagogues. And yet, it's a recognition of the Sabbath, but also that Yeshua is the Lord of that Sabbath. And there's a big resurrection right there. <laughs> Not just the Sabbath and all the laws that have been placed upon it over the centuries or tried to add into it, but a recognition has come that not only is there a Shabbat, but Yeshua is the Lord of that Sabbath. That's been plainly stated in the Brit Hadashah and the New Covenant for millennia. But there's something has happened. How many of you find the Sabbath is intriguing to you, that you enjoy it? Maybe that's why you're here today. Yes. <laughs> I see Shelly's hand. My hand goes up for that. I want to be here on the Sabbath. I want to be here for Shabbat. I want to be with the Mishpacha on Shabbat. And I certainly want to be in a kehila, in a congregation that recon reconciles and knows that Yeshua is the Lord of that Sabbath. New life has come in that area. It's increasingly discussed in theological circles concerning the Shabbat. And Yeshua has the final authority about the Shabbat. Well, here's a second thing. Not only has the Shabbat experienced new life, so to say, a restoration of its original ideas, but here's the second thing. There's been a discovery, a rebirth, a restoration, a rekindling of interest in the biblical feast days. I am amazed. I've been, my wife and I have been involved with this for many years. And I can tell you with all candor here that back 40 years or so, there weren't too many churches interested in Passover seders. There weren't many churches interested in the feast days. It was rare. Now it's an opposite thing happening where believers around the world, whether they're in Africa or whether they're in Asia or whether they're in Latin America, regardless of their mother tongues, whether they're in China, 
they're recognizing, wow, there are biblical feast days. We read them in Leviticus 23, which will be the subject of our Shabbaton today. And that these feast days are relevant to us. There is one type of thinking that says, oh, that's for way back then, and this is now, and never the twain shall meet. But now there's this understanding, wow, let me examine Leviticus 23. Let me, how do we celebrate these feasts? And there's a recognition, guess what? These are the Lord's feasts. They belong to him. I like to say that we have received a hasmanah. Can you say hasmanah? We are receiving a hasmanah, an invitation to partake of those feasts. And we do it here at this congregation. I'm excited about that. Well, there's a third thing also. A new life has come into this. A restoration has taken place. There's a restoration and an increasing acceptance of Yeshua in his authentic historical context. What is his his authentic historical context? Now, in this congregation, this is not new thought here. But Yeshua was a Jewish man. Yeshua was a sabar, a sabra, born and raised in Israel. (laughs) And I don't mean this at all in disrespect, but it's something I've actually heard, that he was the first Catholic I don't mean that disrespectfully. I have heard that more than once. No, he, yes, he is the Messiah, but he was a Jewish man born in Israel. He was a Sabra. And there's an increasing recognition of that. And there's also a secondary idea here, corollary idea, that you know what? Yeshua didn't teach them with a British or an American accent. He spoke however first century Jews spoke in the land of Israel. There's our Messiah right in the middle of it. And as we read through the Besarot, the Gospels, we see he's thronged by people of every age and background and every type of health situation, which tells us he was able to communicate with first century Israeli Jews. That's his real context. We need to take him out of some of the other contexts he's been put in. But there's a restoration happened there. It's no longer unusual in theological circles to, to deal with the Jewishness of Yeshua. And that brings me to the fourth one. There's an increasing recognition of the Jewishness of his apostles. <laughs> so that means that if we recognize the Jewishness of his apostles, his early followers, his first followers, then we recognize that the writings of the New Covenant were written by Jewish people. Some point out and say, well, Luke wasn't probably Jewish. Well, boy, if he wasn't, he knew more about the feast and everything else than the other ones. He gives us more information about the feast and the chronology than the other Gospels. He mentions everything from the eight days of circumcision all the way up to the Passover and everything in between. He does. But there's a recognition of the Jewishness of the apostles and who they were, that they also likewise were first century Israelis, if we can use our modern term. You know what? These apostles knew Hebrew, probably Aramaic also. They knew the Torah, and they lived their lives just like all other first century Jewish people did. Those are the apostles. We need to peel off some of the layers that have been placed over them, some of the the unusual garbs that have been put on them, including also the garbs that have been put upon Yeshua and see him as he really is. There's a restoration of the truthfulness of those ideas. And here's a fifth one. There's an increasing acceptance of the new covenant as a Jewish book. It used to be considered not so Jewish. But there's an increasing acceptance that it's a, it's a Jewish book, the Brit Hadashah, that was written by Jewish people. It addressed many issues that were common in first century Jewish thinking. And also the universal themes that permeated not only Israel, but all around Israel. The ideas of redemption and deliverance. 
The ideas of a, someone coming that would, would vanquish the enemy and give deliverance was a deep, deeply seated Jewish theme in the land of Israel. And number six, there's a revival of the Hebrew language that even eclipses what Eliezer ben Yehuda had imagined. He's considered the, one of the fathers of, of modern Hebrew, helped develop, helped institute the language of Hebrew into the land of Israel as we know it today. But there is a revival of the Hebrew language. Hebrews being spoken all over the world now. For Eliezer ben Yehuda, it was enough to think about Hebrew being spoken in Jerusalem and the, the fledgling city of Tel Aviv or Hefa. But now Hebrews being taught all over the world. There are Hebrew-speaking Chinese. There are Hebrew-speaking Latin Americans. There are Hebrew-speaking Australians. There are Hebrew-speaking Oklahomans. <laughs> Something's happened. And it's good because nearly two-thirds of our Bibles originally were written in Hebrew. So as you study Hebrew, and I strongly encourage that, as you study Hebrew, realize that that's language along with Greek are, and Aramaic are languages that transfer immediately into biblical understanding. You can start connecting your understanding of Hebrew with the Bible directly, the original text. There is also, number seven, a growing emphasis on what is called the divine imperative. What is the divine imperative? That's Romans 1, 16 and 17, to the Jews first. First in priority, not superiority, as I like to say, but to the Jewish people first. This is what the first believers did. They reached out to the Jewish people. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, You shall be my witnesses where Jerusalem, first place mentioned. Judea, second place mentioned. Samaria, third place mentioned. And then lastly, the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. The divine imperative that's uh, written in Romans chapter 1, verses in Verses 16 and 7, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jewish people first, but also to all the nations. It's not to Jewish people first, to the exclusion of others, or to all the nations, to the exclusion of the Jewish people. But to the Jewish people, there's an emphasis there that you can read in the book of Acts. That's how they lived it through. And number eight, Messianic Jewish congregations. <laughs> I believe there's a restoration happen in Messianic Jewish congregations. I don't know sometimes if we realize what this is. I don't know if we really get it. That we have again happening what we read about in the New Covenant, the Brit Hadashah where Jews and Gentiles are together worshiping together. One in the Messiah. That's incredible. We saw that back in the time of the apostles. Nearly 2,000 years ago, that was very normative in places like Thessaloniki and Rome and Colossae, where there were Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers together worshiping together. We have that now increasingly across the face of the earth whether it's in Kiev in Ukraine, or whether it's in Joburg in South Africa, or whether it's Buenos Aires in Latin America, or whether it's Canberra, Australia, or even Toronto, Canada, California, New York, all the states practically. But let, let that hit you. There's some kind of a restoration that we, we read about this in the New Covenant. In the book of Acts, the formation of congregation of Jews and Gentiles together. As Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 shares, it says, The Gentile believers are fellow heirs and partakers of his promise in Messiah through the gospel, even as the Jewish believers are, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 express and make very plain. It says, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we Jews and Gentiles, we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together to 
together with Messiah. And by the way, lest we forget, which we don't, by grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up together, and he's made us sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua. You see, God has no respecter of persons. But he doesn't disclude the Jewish people. He's not cast away the Jewish people, as has been theologically taught for many centuries, that God was done with the Jews. He's not. He's alive and well, and he's moving mightily among the Jewish people. Number nine, nine of ten, we're almost through here. I think this is a great restoration. I'll leave this to your judgment. There is a restoration of biblically-based eating practices. How many of you think that's true, that something's happening in the area of kashrut, as we call it in Hebrew? Eating practices. Now, be honest, some may have come from a background where they ate anything that's, that wiggled, moved, or, or whatever, and didn't try to eat them first. But then when you start reading Scripture and you start connecting with believers that are thinking more in terms of, well, what, how does God want us to eat? And you end up going back to places like Leviticus. And I'm advocating and saying that I think that there's been a restoration of biblically-based eating practices. Some of you may even begin to attend a Messianic congregation, maybe even this one. And you came in thinking, well, I'm doing fine. And you brought the squid to the first own egg. And, and you were kindly, hopefully kindly told, well, actually, uh, we don't like tentacles in our lunch. <laughs> but there's a restoration happening. People are starting to take it seriously. It's not a, a matter of superior, well, I don't eat the, the tray for the unclean stuff, so I'm better than you. No, it's not about that for you. It's about your chosen way, how you want to live your life and conduct yourself. And you're looking to the Word of God and you're saying, hey, this is my, my direction I want to go. And then you're validated as you read the New Covenant and you read Acts chapter 10, arguably one to two decades after Yeshua's resurrection. And Kepha, Peter still says, as the sheet of unclean animals comes down from heaven three times, Peter is able to say, even after the resurrection, he said, I have never eaten anything unclean. You mean he didn't understand that Yeshua taught that everything was okay to eat? No, he didn't get that understanding. He was right there with Yeshua. Now, friends, am I advocating against your reading habits? No, I'm not. Bevakasha, eat however you please, but there are some people that are looking to Scripture. Maybe some of us here listening to these words, and they're saying, well, I want to, I want, I want to go a different direction here. Instead of pigging out, I don't want to pig out anymore. <laughs> or or you know, eating high on the hog, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> But they're saying, hey, I want to follow what the Lord says, but we must keep in mind Romans chapter 14, verse 17. We're not called to be the judge of our brother in these matters. Because Romans 14, verse 17 says, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that you can eat kosher food and still be reprobate in your own ways? <laughs> still a gossip? Still a lustful person? You may not be doing that with your food. You may think that you're walking a straight, narrow, holy way. I think the solution is to make sure you give all your life to the Lord. Your eating practices, your thought process, your actions, give it all to the Lord. And I want to conclude with number 10. A type of restoration that's happened that I think is very exciting. It's simply called the restoration of what has been termed Davidic worship. Hebrew songs. Who would have thunk it? Hebrew songs. That we would be in Oklahoma City, Jews and Gentiles, one in the Messiah, singing Hebrew language songs, and not only just singing them, but knowing that these were written by Jewish Messianic believers in Israel. 
and they have somehow been shipped to us, all different means. We've learned the Hebrew. Most of them are exactly Scripture in Hebrew. And who would have thought it? Fifty years ago, would we have thought that would have happened? Some of us weren't even thought of ourselves at that time. (laughs) But it's happened. And along with these, Davidic dance, as it's called. Dance as an expression of worship, not as an expression, say, hey, look at me, I'm a good dancer. But an expression of worship, say, look at God, he's a great God. And I'm moving my feet and shifting my hands because I want to worship and honor him in all my being. And Jewish liturgy. How many of you appreciate the liturgy we do? There's so much more we could do. Some like to get here early enough so they can participate in the liturgy. Much of it is derived from the Jewish community. And it's scriptural, and we, we stick to it. But Jewish liturgy, Davidic dance, Hebrew songs, Hebrew rhythms, minor key songs, if you will, they're found in many communities, including, including here at Rosh Pina. And I'm glad there's a restoration's happened. There's nothing wrong with the other. Please understand me. My goal here is not to criticize, but to point out there's something that's been happening, and the Messianic Jewish movement is part of it. And I'll conclude by saying this to you, dear friends. I believe Messianic Judaism is here to stay until Yeshua returns. (laughs) It's not going to change. I mean, yeah, we're going to be changed by the Lord into all he has for us, but Messianic Judaism is not going to disappear I believe there will be increasing numbers of Jewish believers linking arm in arm and heart to heart with more and more Messianic Gentiles until the day of the Lord's return. This is what's going to happen, I think. It is happening. And it will not only be, be Jewish believers saying, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the Lord welcoming him, Yeshua in his return, but it will also be Gentile believers welcoming Yeshua, and you know they'll be saying in Hebrew too, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, say it with me, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, say it one more time with some meaning, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, there'll be a greeting party for those that survive to that point. And there'll be Jews and Gentiles. <laughs> I consider it a great privilege to be part of a mainstream Messianic Jewish congregation. It's a great privilege to be here among you. I consider it a great privilege to be part of a congregation that is Bible and Holy Spirit alert, as I call it. Alert to what the whole Bible says, Genesis to Revelation. We grapple with it sometimes. Don't think we have all the answers, but we're looking at the whole book. And we want to be alert to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And we all want to be a community that welcomes all equally. After all, when you get down to it, it's a person's character that's important. How they treat others, how they conduct themselves, type of life they live. I think it's a great privilege to participate in to invest in, to help maintain and to labor in a Messianic Jewish synagogue. It's a privilege. It's a restorative thing happening. Fifty years ago, this wasn't happening. I promise you. But it's happening now. This is birth from the Lord, not by human. Who could, who could have put it together? It has to be the Ruach. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to be part of a congregation that's also not ashamed of Yeshua. You're not here on Shabbat without hearing about Yeshua. Never. I'm thankful to be part of that kind of a congregation that honors Yeshua as the head of the community and realizes that all authority belongs to Him and that He's coming back. He's Melech Olam, as Eric said it today. He's the King of the universe. At the time of Israel's reestablishment in May of 1948, few, few, few would have dreamed of what we know now as the Messianic Jewish movement. Few would have dreamed it. There were less than 10 Jewish believers in Israel 
1940, by all reckonings. Some say less than five. No one knows because they didn't take a census. Few Jewish believers in the land of Israel. But it's changed now. There are Jewish communities, Messianic Jewish communities throughout the land of Israel. Even as I mentioned throughout the nations. Messianic Jewish communities. And you know, God is, did not just wind up the earth and throw it out there till it winds down. He is actively involved. He is winning many to himself. He's drawing many hearts to himself. Those that are seeking him, they are finding him. Those who are calling upon him, he is responding according to his will. And those that honor him, he will honor them also in the way that he desires. He's not aloof and distant. He is the living God. He's El Chai, the living God, the God who lives. He's the God who restores. And he's the God that loves his Jewish people. And he loves all the peoples of the earth. Let's pray. Father, how we praise you today for the good work you're doing. Thank you even as your son Yeshua said, you do not leave us as orphans. You have sent your ruach, your spirit. Father, I pray that your spirit will continue to work and move in all of our hearts that we might glorify you, that we would recognize the time that we're in, that we would redeem this time, that would be active and involved with your community, doing your labor, that we'd be good vine dressers in your vineyard, faithful, trustworthy, found being about your business upon your return. We pray today for Israel, and we lift up the Jewish people to you, Please, O oh Lord, remove the veil. Reveal yourself. Show yourself mighty. We pray, Lord, for the nations that you'll bring many, even in the most far-flung areas of this globe, that by your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, you will touch lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are involved with our lives. And we offer you praise for that. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.